Today, on the Orange Table, we're getting frank about environmental racism. If you read the IPCC report from a couple years ago, we have until 2030 to prevent the worst effects of climate change. And so one year has already passed, that's one of 10. Why do we have to fight so much? Why do people have to, you know, get hurt trying to protect something that's just so essential to how we live or just to live? But I feel like what we're talking about is a false choice. <laughs> one that I think uh, is of questionable morals, but like forcing impoverished communities of color between preserving their land and their health and economic success. And I just think that's not like a poison pill situation that's set up for any other community. This two-part special edition of The Orange Table starts now with an interview of Anna Hildner, co-coordinator of Divest Princeton. Um, okay, so I'll just start with our first question, which is, could you frame the conversation around divestment with a quick summary of the aims of Divest Princeton? Sure. So Divest Princeton is a coalition of students, alumni, faculty, and staff calling on Princeton University to terminate formal associations with and divest its endowment from the fossil fuel industry. Uh, so this includes any fossil fuel companies that one, develop or make plans to develop fossil fuel resources whose emissions would exceed the UN's climate change goals, and or two, uh, spread or facilitate the spread of climate disinformation. Um, we also, in general, ask for more transparency from the administration. I think the Princeton community deserves to have a role in making sure that our endowment and other practices are ethical and sustainable, which is very similar to what other uh, student organizations and movements on campus ask for, um, such as SPEAR and the Princeton Anti-Austerity Coalition. Um, about Divest Princeton, it was founded in the fall of 2019. Since then, we have collected over 2,100 signatures on our no donations until divestment open letter to Eisgruber and the administration. Uh, this makes our petition the largest asking to withhold donations and the fourth soon to be third largest petition in Princeton's history to our knowledge. Um, we also have almost 700 public endorsements that you can read on our website uh, from Princeton students, alumni, faculty, staff, campus groups, and other prominent supporters such as Bill McKibben and Jane Goodall. Uh, an undergraduate referendum on fossil fuel divestment and association recently passed with 82% voting yes. And in the same election, 17 of the 19 USG candidates publicly supported Divest Princeton's proposal. Um, so opposition to the proposal has thus far been limited and often comes from people with financial ties to fossil fuel companies. So I think this is a great time to have this talk because we have seen an incredible amount of momentum this school year. And I'm ready to see a lot more as we start the semester, especially because we expect the board to consider our proposal this semester. Yeah, I mean, the divestment movement is huge, like across organizations, um, across university campuses. And in some ways, it feels like we're a bit late to the game. 
Um, and I was wondering, kind of just based on your advocacy in particular, whether prior to that referendum that you mentioned before, um, the one on divestment that gained 82% of support from the student body, prior to that, how willing was the university to engage in these conversations with you? We submitted our proposal in February. Um, and since then, we have been communicating with the resources committee. So um, the formal process for divestment, uh, we first submit a proposal to the resources committee that's part of the CPUC. Right. And then they make a decision on whether they want to recommend uh, divestment to the board of trustees. Um, and so it's, you know, it's a much longer formal process than we would like, especially given that, like, if you read the IPCC report um, from a couple years ago, we have until 2030 to prevent the worst effects of climate change. And so one year has already passed. That's one of 10. Um, but yeah, we've been in communication with the resources committee. Um, four of our members and four of the members from the resources committee have been part of a sub subcommittee um, that has drafted a proposal um, that the resources committee actually is going to vote on this week. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah, and we've talked to people that are part of Perinco, we've talked to professors that receive funding. Um, and, you know, we tried to reach just about anyone on campus or that's part of the Princeton community that would have something to say about this. Yeah, so this is definitely something we're going to get into with Keely and Jessica, who are our guests from It Is a Princeton leader in the program. Um, but I wrote a piece for the Prince about the BGL protests in 2015 over the summer. Um, and one thing that kept coming up from these activists was this impression that the university was utilizing overcomplicated bureaucracy in order to slow their progress in an intentional way, um, understanding that as administrators, they have um, just a longer term within the institution than students who come here, obviously, for four years. And I'm wondering to what extent you identify um, with that frustration that the BGL activists I spoke with have expressed and, and whether that's been your experience um, in any way. Yeah, I think that is a general, you know, whether they do it on purpose or not, I think it is um, a problem that this, the formal process takes so long. Um, I think, you know, I think it was Spear, their last call for divestment. Um, it took two years to go through the resources committee. And by that point, you know, you have a lot of people graduate and then it kind of disappears. Um, I think Divest Princeton, um, I think we have combated that in that we have a lot of alumni supporters um, and we're kind of showing the university that we're not going anywhere. Um, and yeah, it definitely is a frustrating process, but that goes to show like you have the formal, you have one side of this, which is the formal 
bureaucracy, going through the resources committee, going to the board of trustees. Um, but then you also have the other side, which is our petition and like making noise and making people hear like what we want to say, um, doing things like this, spreading awareness, which I think is much more effective and important. Um, you look at the removal of the Wilson name from the School of Policy, that didn't go through the Resources Committee and then to the Board of Trustees. Um, it's also frustrating in that um, the Resources Committee and the Board of Trustees, they have different criteria for passing something like this. So the Resources Committee, they're supposed to show, um, they're supposed to determine that there's consensus and that a proposal is um, follows the values of the university. Um, and so I think a problem at the beginning of this, it's been clarified since then, but at the beginning of this, we asked, okay, what do we have to do to show that there's consensus? And they would say, well, there, there's really no definition for consensus. Um, and so we'd ask, uh, okay, <laughs> it, so what are the values of the university that we have to follow? And they say, well, there's no defined values of the university. So um, I think going through this whole process, it shows that the university really has to change the system a bit to make change um, more achievable. Okay, interesting. Um, I'm going to move on to the next question. And okay, basically, you wrote an op ed in the print last June calling on um, universities and Linger Center for Energy and the Environment not to renew its contract with ExxonMobil. And you already kind of talked a little bit about Ann Linger, but could you explain further why, in your opinion, that relationship was harmful? Yeah, of course. So um, I think it is generally not good research practice to get funding from an industry that has an active financial interest in the research that is being conducted. So in this case, conducting research on climate change is directly relevant to Exxon's core business, which causes climate change. So what we see at the Anlinger Center, um, which is what I wrote about in the prints, we have an oil and gas corporation not only funding, but actively participating in research into climate change that should put Exxon out of business. And I think the biggest problem with this is it creates a very serious conflict of interest that puts our generation and future generations at risk, um, but also hurts the reputation um, of the university and the viability of its research. Um, and so, and so we have seen that throughout the five year partnership between Exxon and the Anlinger Center, instead of using Princeton's expertise to help it make to help make it more environmentally responsible, um, Exxon has continued to block action on climate change through the funding of disinformation campaigns, lobbying, and donations. For example, in 2019, Exxon spent $41 million lobbying against climate action in the United States, making it the largest energy lobbyist. And they still spend more than 99% of their expenditures on the production of fossil fuels. Um, 
Another important point is that Exxon also profits at the expense of black and brown communities around the country and world. Um, I think polluting refineries, toxic waste from fracking wells, methane leaks from compressor stations, pipelines and oil spills are often part of doing business uh, for the fossil fuel industry and definitely for Exxon. And I'm interested to know to what extent you feel that the university's partnership with Exxon legitimizes ExxonMobil, um, and even to go as far as saying it might endorse uh, all of the awful actions that you just laid out. To what extent is that relationship um, kind of bring with it that legitimization and that endorsement that, that I just set up? Definitely works to legitimize Exxon, and that's why Exxon uh, creates these partnerships with universities so that like if you go to Exxon's website, if you go to Exxon's Twitter, um, you can see they post about their partnership with Princeton University and kind of say, look, um, we're working with Princeton University on research on climate change. We're sustainable. We're the future. Um, please don't hurt us and hurt our profits. And so while the partnership works to legitimize the incredible harm that ExxonMobil does across the world, it also works to delegitimize the research that Princeton is doing because of the conflict of interest. So I want to bring up a contrary point um, in, in relation to our conversation around um, the university's connection to ExxonMobil. And I do want to make it clear that, I mean, Aisha and I have been intentional about when bringing up a contrary point, not going to any voices who disagree with your movement um, and divestment on the basis of some sort of fiction or fantasy world where climate change is not caused by, by man. Um, so we're kind of restricting that criticism that we ask you to respond to, to people who are um, sound on the science. One person who is um, sound on, on the science of climate change, but does have a different opinion than you on the relationship with Exxon is the director of the Ann Linger Center um, for Energy and the Environment, Lynn Liu. She wrote an op-ed in response to your op-ed um, in which she argues that the relationship with these fossil fuel companies is necessary in order to research the technology of carbon capture. Um, she also points to the fact that the relationship with Exxon has enabled her and her colleagues to do um, sound scientific research with that funding. Um, so she defends the relationship. I guess my question to you is, um, why is her conception of that wrong? And is there any room, I guess, for Exxon and these fossil fuel companies in, in the science going forward? Yeah, I... The problem with this is her article frames fossil fuel companies as leaders trying to decarbonize as if they are doing everything they can. Um, however, if you look at what has actually occurred, uh, this is not the case. Exxon only wants to fund projects that won't harm their profits. So carbon capture and storage doesn't replace fossil fuels. Efficiency doesn't replace fossil fuels. And um, 
hydrogen is nearly all from fossil fuels, which are the main sustainable energy solutions that these centers and companies work on um, instead of other alternatives that would support the kind of shift away from fossil fuels that we need. Um, and yeah, Exxon, it's, this is a fascinating area of research. So Exxon internally considered carbon capture and storage in 1981, and they said it was too expensive and that shifting to renewable energy sources was the only solution that makes sense. So by funding and Langer, Exxon pushes this notion that there are a wide variety of solutions that involve the continuation of fossil fuels when really what we need to be focusing on for the future of this planet is how we can shift away from fossil fuels as quickly as possible. Because remember the IPCC report, um, it only gives us until 2030 uh, to prevent the worst effects of climate change. Uh, another thing to note is that funding research is an established strategy by the fossil fuel industry and others uh, the American Petroleum Institute actually sent out a memo in 1998 of their strategic plan for stopping climate policy, which included building relationships with scientists uh, to impact the climate science debate, which we see with the Amlinger Center, which we see with BP, um, and also lobbying in Congress. Um, and we have seen this happen in the past as well with the tobacco industry funding research on lung cancer, which sounds ridiculous, right? It's the same thing. And we've seen it with the sugar industry funding research on diabetes. So we have seen this happen so many times in research partnerships and it hurts Princeton's reputation to be part of that. Uh, for example, the recent Net Zero America report uh, has received so much backlash for being funded by BP, which delegitimizes Princeton's research and legitimizes the fossil fuel industry. One more important thing to get to before we end this interview, um, I mean, the Orange Table was created as a space to elevate the voices of um, specifically Black people and have those difficult and uncomfortable conversations around race. Um, so we wanted to make sure to be specific in this conversation with you about kind of viewing divestment through a, a racial lens, through the lens of environmental racism. Uh, so yeah, we just, Aisha has a question specifically to this point, but we definitely want to highlight um, the disproportionate effect that fossil fuel companies and their emissions have on black and brown communities. Um, and then specifically kind of probe for ways in which your organization is taking that into account and how that's reflected in your leadership. But I'll let, I'll let Aisha take it. Omar like pretty much touched on what we wanted to ask, but <laughs> but I will just kind of like give some, you kind of touched already on, on, on like how, um, or like just the, the fact that um, the false food industry like tends to disproportionately impact uh, marginalized communities. But I wanted to just share some statistics for our audience. Um, so according to the University of Michigan, people of color compromise 56% of the population living in neighborhoods with toxic release facilities compared to 30% um, anywhere else. Uh, according to the NAACP's 2012 cold-blooded study, 53% of people who live within three miles of the most heavily 
polluted, uh, polluting coal-fired power plants are Black. Uh, a 2016 study based in Southern Texas found that wastewater disposal wells are 2.04 times as common in areas where more than 80% of the population are people of color compared to majority white areas. Um, and so kind of like Omar said, with that being said, how are you incorporating that, um, I guess, kind of that information? Um, how is that really reflected in your divestment effort? And are there any POC leadership within um, Princeton's divestment effort? Uh, just could you talk about that a little more? Yeah, exactly. Um, those statistics are very telling. This is such an important issue, and we actually have a great article about environmental racism um, and the divestment movement in the Nassau Weekly, uh, which I encourage everyone to check out. Uh, I think, yeah, as, a, as an institution whose own past is tied uh, to the country's long history of exploitation and discrimination um, against minorities. Princeton has a responsibility to help support the marginalized communities that have been and will continue to be the greatest victims of fossil fuel extraction and climate change. Um, and so by accepting funding from these companies that have done and continue to do so much damage, uh, we are supporting that conduct and I don't think that can continue. Um, and so to answer your question, um, I think we have made an active effort to try and see how we can be, um, how we can tackle environmental racism and focus on these issues. Um, so we have made an effort to spread awareness um, and get involved in more BIPOC causes like SPEAR and Change Woodrow Wilson School Now. Um, we've gotten support from natives of Princeton um, and we have written and discussed these topics in talks and articles. Um, we make sure to post information and news about these topics on social media. Um, and it, there is, like I said, there is a ton of um, overlap between these issues. Um, like there is, there are a lot of similarities between this divestment movement and the divestment movement in the 1980s um, and in 2006 with Darfur. Um, and I think it's part of a larger um, movement we've seen in the last year pushing the university to um, make change in that regard. So yeah, we as students and as members of the Princeton community have to acknowledge and actively combat the systemic racism rooted in our society and our university institution. Another, another thing that we've kind of not touched on yet is the ways in which, I mean, post coronavirus, you're able to organize because I guess like having bodies there in front of administrators, like physical in-person protests, like that's another tool in your toolkit. And I'm wondering how you think that will change, I guess, your momentum and your ability to put pressure on and um, affect change. That's a hard question because how do you protest with social distance? <laughs> um, 
Like I'm, we really want to respect the health guidelines and don't want to put anybody in danger. Um, and so that's, that's a big part of what we're doing right now is trying to figure out how we can uh, use this opportunity to actually have people on campus. Um, I think a really fascinating part of this movement is um, it has been online the entire time because we have so many alumni um, participating. It's always, our meetings have always been on the computer uh, through Zoom or other video um, meetings. Um, and so now suddenly we're going to have people in person um, and we're going to have to change the way we do things a bit. We did just print about 700 stickers, um, which we're going to try and get out to people. I think, you know, there's opportunities like everybody's going to be quarantined for two weeks, right? What can you do with all that free time? You can organize with Divest Prints and you could make a beautiful poster to put in your window um, and we'll take a pic of it. Um, and I'm really excited to see what happens um, because this semester, I mean, this, this semester is it. Like we need to put all the pressure we can on the board of trustees because we do expect them to be considering our proposal. Um, and we don't want, you know, we want them to come to a decision this semester. We can't have it pushed any later, um, especially with the urgency of this situation. Um, and so I, you know, to everyone watching, if you haven't yet and are supportive of, supportive of this movement, please check out divestprinceton.com, any of our social media and sign our petition because um, we have to put in all the work this semester. And I'm really excited to see what happens. That's a good place to end it. Um, our thanks to Anna for coming here and sitting down with us for this very enlightening conversation. Um, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much.